Michael, the relationship between the church and US politics is at a very interesting stage. We saw lots of people who define as Christians, particularly white evangelicals, vote for Trump and continue to support him. How has that come about, do you think? Yeah. Well, well so it's important to say, right, that white evangelicals don't make up the, the whole of the American church. So African-American pro- Protestants voted heavily for Hillary Clinton. Hispanic Protestants voted for Hillary at lesser margins, but still uh, significantly. And of course, Catholics and mainline Protestants were a bit more split. The white evangelical vote has gotten a lot of attention. Uh, uh, one, because white evangelicals identify publicly as religious at a higher rate than a lot of those other constituencies. And so they, they they constantly reassert their and present themselves and their religious identity as primary. Um, we got here in a number of, of ways. Uh, the first is um, white evangelicals have felt uh, embattled, uh, particularly towards the end of the Obama years. And they had a candidate in Donald Trump who was not cut from their cloth, but who nevertheless insisted that he was the one to protect them, that he'd be a bully for them. And then when they looked to the other major party alternative, they saw someone that uh, first had been a major lightning rod for the last 30 years of public life, and then second, uh, in, in Hillary Clinton, and then second, Hillary Clinton ran a campaign um, that virtually ignored them, intentionally so. Uh, and so at the very moment when Donald Trump was saying, I'm the only one who cares about you, Hillary Clinton's campaign basically sent the same message. Uh, in other words, that Donald Trump was saying he was the only one who cared about them, and Hillary, through her silence, was saying... Didn't Hillary want their vote? uh, You know, I think any candidate running is happy to get any vote. She certainly wasn't willing to work for him. Um, And so um, this is not... um, You know, there are a number of ways that Democratic candidates can go after the votes of white evangelicals. It's important to note, for all of the attention that's been given on the 81% number, which is significant... Uh, that's more than voted for George W. Bush both times. Um, that's uh, more than voted for Mitt Romney, more than voted for John McCain. Uh, it's important to note, though, uh, the number that hasn't been discussed as much but should be is 16%. That's the percentage that voted for Hillary Clinton, which is abysmally, almost unfathomably low. Barack Obama won 26 or 27 percent in 2008. He won 23 percent in 2012 as the first major candidate to support gay marriage after the Catholic Church had accused him of a war on religion, and he still won 23 percent. Hillary Clinton won seven points less, which accounts for millions of votes. What's important for a British audience to understand, uh, white white evangelicals account for over a fifth of the American electorate. I'm sorry, over a quarter of the American electorate. And so uh, we're talking about just a few percentage point flip is millions of votes. And Hillary Clinton's campaign, both in terms of her message, in terms of her staffing structure, and in terms of her issue positions, uh, tried to win without them. And we saw what happens when you try to do that in America. Let's talk about those issue positions, because we're hearing a lot um, in these conversations about the Supreme Court and the appointment there. Um, Hillary seemed in the presidential debates actively to reject people who wanted a pro-life vote or a conservative vote on the Supreme Court. That was clearly part of her strategy. Yes, uh, she um, accepted 
the argument of some Democratic strategists that if you have a moderate or nuanced position on uh, the issue of abortion, um, then you don't mobilize your base and you don't win over any pro-life votes. I think that's wrong, but she accepted that logic and took instead the idea that uh, if you're forceful, if you're unapologetic, you'll motivate turnout. Now, I would say um, Donald Trump did all the motivating that you need. You, you, you don't, the difference between, for instance, in that third debate where she seemed to defend third-term abortions, which because the Supreme Court declared them unconstitutional is, is, a, is a waste of breath. It's already unconstitutional. Or, or I'm sorry, the, the late-term ban was deemed appropriate. Let's go, let's think about Hillary's issue positions then, because it did feel very much as though she was championing a pro-abortion message and making access to abortion more widely available, not less, didn't it? Well, yes, and her approach was different from Democratic campaigns uh, of of uh, the modern era. So even her husband ran on a platform of safe, legal, and rare. When she was uh, running for president in 2008, when she was in the Senate, uh, she advocated uh, policies that would reduce abortion. She talked about abortion as a moral issue. Um, it, when it came to 2016, that was not the approach she took. Uh, she seemed to embrace the view um, advanced by some Democratic strategists, if you have a nuanced or moderate view on abortion, uh, that you won't motivate your base enough, uh, but you'll actually, uh, and you won't get anything from the pro-life side. And so it's best to double down, be unapologetic. Uh, and, and that's what she did. And so when it comes to the third debate, she's asked a question about her view of uh, abortion in uh, the third term, so uh, uh, abortion basically up until up until birth, uh, and instead of either referring to uh, the Supreme Court decision or what most Democratic candidates would have done, which is say, well, actually, under President Obama, the abortion rate is the lowest in America that it's been since Roe v. Wade. Instead of saying, you know, uh, we may disagree on the legality of abortion, but I support policies to support women and strengthen adoption. She didn't say any of that. She actually uh, proceeded to debate whether late-term abortion was a good thing. Um, and, and that is not the typical Democratic move. It's exactly what Cecile Richards of Planned Parenthood has been asking for, and, uh, and she gave it to her. Planned Parenthood does seem to have been a kind of toxic dividing line in this whole thing. Um, what's the attraction there for Hillary of aligning herself with that kind of organization? Well, again, it's... Um, well, Planned Parenthood has made historic investments in Democratic campaigns over the last two presidential elections. Um, and and it, it, it goes with the view that uh, you, you, you fight with the friends that you came with. <laughs> and so it's this idea that if, if you're clear uh, and assertive on this issue, then you will motivate women and other pro-choice communities to support you. You will draw stronger contrast with your opponent. Um, and again, some Democratic strategists whom I disagree with would say that if you try and nuance your position at all, you're only giving up enthusiasm and not gaining anything from, you know, quote unquote, those, those pro-lifers who will never vote for you anyway. But, but again, it's important to note, uh, many of them did vote for previous Democratic candidates. 
So it's not a hypothetical to say uh, to say that these candidates uh, that that these voters would vote for Democratic candidates who had other positions. There are 20 million, and that's a conservative estimate. 20 million pro-life Democrats today, and that's after the intense polarization we've seen over the last several several decades. When you worked in Obama's uh, team, you were specifically dedicated to faith outreach, and there are a bunch of you that did that work. Did Hillary have that kind of resource, doing faith outreach on her behalf? The Clinton campaign uh, waited to bring on a faith outreach staffer until she had already wrapped up the nomination, so into the summer of 2016. Uh, That staffer was... Uh, capable and qualified, but you bring anyone on that late into a campaign, not only are they not able to really affect the direction and the infrastructure of the campaign, but it sends a message to people of faith that this really isn't a priority for you. She had constituency outreaches to women and LGBT and Jewish voters and uh, tribal Americans and Americans with disabilities and all other constituencies far before she went to the faith community, which again, I'd Uh, note that uh, America is still a profoundly religious country. Over 75% of Americans affiliate with a religious tradition. And so that seems like a pretty big slice of America to, to leave out. It also seems a bit counterintuitive because Hillary identifies as Methodist, says that she prays, she has a devotional that she follows. Was she scared to identify publicly as being religious? So that's been one of the most fascinating things. There were some moments during the campaign where uh, religious uh, references were made. For instance, uh, before the South Carolina primary, which is um, South Carolina is heavily African-American and therefore heavily uh, religious, she ran an ad about some pastor coming across, uh, about her coming across some pastor in a coffee shop who was reading the Bible and the pastor is just uh, effusive with the, uh, that Hillary was able to talk with him about 1 Corinthians 13, you know, the famous uh, section on love. And uh, that ad went up for uh, the two weeks before South Carolina. Hillary won South Carolina. We never heard of that exchange again in the entire primary against Bernie Sanders. Uh, You watch the, it's been noted, the Democratic Convention primarily to draw a contrast with the sort of, uh, uh, the immorality that was represented by Donald Trump. Uh, some people have known the Democratic Convention at times felt like a, a quasi-religious revival. And so there were moments. Uh, the other thing that's been interesting is when Hillary Clinton kicked off her book tour for what happened, the first stop of that tour was at a church. And so with all of those, with her Methodist background, the fact that she taught Sunday school and uh, she would tell the story of her youth group uh, pastor bringing her to see MLK, there there was all of this history to draw upon. And uh, her campaign didn't recognize the value of that. Um, uh, A one, it's been... um, uh, apparently, one senior Clinton official uh, told a reporter uh, that the Clinton campaign would run the first post-Christian campaign uh, in presidential politics, and you know we saw how that turned out. Some of the evangelicals that we've met have felt that Hillary was talking about them when she talked about deplorables. Is that who she had in mind? She certainly did nothing to dissuade from the notion. So, for instance, you look at Barack Obama's 2008 campaign, and 
he went to Saddleback, uh, the 2012 campaign where I ran religious outreach. He spoke directly to religious communities, including evangelicals. Uh, his website had a page for people of faith where they could hear Barack Obama speak to people of faith about uh, the role of faith in America and how his, poli- how his policies uh, uh, meshed with their values. Uh, Hillary Clinton had nothing like that. She spoke to a Methodist women's conference, uh, might have been even before she formally announced, but back in uh, 2015, I believe, uh, there, there was no big seminal moment. She could have gone to a Christian college and given a speech about uh, the complexities of religious freedom in the 21st century. She could have given a speech about her lifelong passion for adoption and how that matched with the faith community and particularly with evangelicals. But but there was no no outreach, no interviews with major Christian publications. Again, not bringing on a faith staff or someone to to reach out to religious communities until late in the campaign. Uh, and so uh, it just it just wasn't there. It wasn't when they looked at key populations, when they looked at um, what they thought was important in running a presidential campaign. Religion did not figure into that calculation. Many of the people that we've spoken to speak very strongly about an aggressively secular left and as though some of the people who voted Trump, some of the Christians who voted Trump, didn't necessarily want to, but they really couldn't bear to vote for Hillary. What do you think has happened to the left in America? Well, I mean, a big part of that is what has happened to the right, which is it's become uh, uh, taken over with fear and senses and a sense of embattlement. Um, I... <laughs> this is an aside, but I just wrote for Christian today on on this um, on this uh, sort of uh, pervasive fear that the political right has inspired, and so a lot of the warnings about Hillary Clinton were overblown, but they were effective. Um, I think Hillary Clinton is probably the most religiously literate Democratic nominee that we're likely to see. Um, uh, Ever uh, for for the future of American politics. Um, again, she went to she taught Sunday school. She's a lifelong Methodist. Uh, given the demographic changes in America and, and the way the Democratic Party is structured now, it's not certain that we'll have someone that will be as religiously fluent. Uh, again, they did not pull on uh, on those threads, and her campaign didn't um, didn't give religious people a sense that for all of the talk of stronger together, that that included them. But I, I, I again, just want to point out um, how much of Donald Trump's campaign and the religious organizations that supported him, the religious advocates that supported him, um, worked to... Um, work to build up that pressure rather than alleviate it. I, I mean, the, the best way to think about the 81%... Um, is that pressure had been building up again towards the latter half of the Obama years with HHS mandate, with uh, the very quick cultural transformation on same and then legal transformation on same-sex marriage. Pressure had been building up. Donald Trump's method of approaching these voters was to say, I'm the only one who will relieve the pressure. And Hillary Clinton, by not offering a pressure release valve of her own only helped Donald Trump's case that either you vote for me or the America that you know, uh, the America that you know, you'll never, you'll never see it again. 
We're hearing that people in rural America, flyover country, if you like, have long felt ignored and forgotten. Um, why do you think that is? What's happened that's made so many people feel rejected? Well, a number of things. First, just the basic demographics. So the middle of America is much more religious than uh, the coast. The middle of America is much more re- religious than those in elite uh, positions of uh, policy making and decision making, whether it be in media or politics, um, and that has a lot to do with with education um, and, and uh, with uh, w- with the sectors themselves. Um, the other thing is um, the legal transformation that's happened. People feel like decisions are being made in D.C. that don't reflect the values of their home, and so the same-sex marriage uh, uh, decision is a, a, a pretty clear example of this dozens of states had voted on same-sex marriage and either had it in their constitution or had referendums uh and yet with one um with one supreme court vote it was made legal across the country and that obviously you know i think can lead to some uh some feelings of uh, uh of um uh being being run over roughshod of being steamrolled and so when someone like Donald Trump comes, it, evangelicals mostly were not confused about the fact that this guy was a, a moral exemplar, but he came in and said, you won't be shoved around anymore. Uh, I do want to note from a Christian perspective, that sort of self-centered motivation uh, is not a Christian motivation to vote. And so when I'm talking in churches, um, I, I am... Uh, affirming that our politics cannot just be self-centered, but has to be other-centered as well. Um, But politically, it's very effective to tell people the other side is out to get you. I'm the only one who cares. And of course, Hillary Clinton ran her own version of that to the constituencies, you know, she was, she was supporting. How do you, how do you see other Christians, not the white evangelicals, but black evangelicals, Catholics, mainline churches, how do you see them voting? What's their voting behavior at the moment? Yeah. Well, uh, African Americans uh, are voting heavily for Democratic candidates, ninety plus percent, depending on the state, depending on the context of the race, and in presidential elections, ninety plus percent for sure. So at the presidential level, ninety five plus percent of African Americans are voting for the Democratic candidate. Uh, that has uh, a lot to do with the particularized concerns of this community. So uh, you're not making yourself an attractive option to a community if your party is intentionally uh, uh, singling out your community for voter disenfranchisement, which we saw in North Carolina, which we saw in Alabama. Uh, well, so the African-American community has largely been only appealed to by one party and that's for uh, an array of historical and and political reasons the hispanic community is a bit more split so hispanic catholics tend to vote more for democrats hispanic evangelicals too but to a lesser extent it's it's much more of a swing vote Uh, when we look to catholics Barack Obama won the Catholic vote in 2008 and 2012. Hillary Clinton became the first Democratic candidate to lose the Catholic vote since John Kerry, a Catholic himself, in 2004. Um, and the Catholic vote is very complicated in this country. There are pockets uh, of uh, you know, regular church-attending Catholics, 
Catholicism also takes on a, a, a cultural identifier in some places, and so uh, there are sort of cultural values attached with Catholicism that uh, sometimes are differentiated from from religious from religious values, uh, and so um, that that vote was was split. Uh, Mainline Protestants, it's a, it's a much different bag. Race has a lot to do with it. So Donald Trump won white mainline Protestant voters. But again, we've seen a deterioration of uh, mainline Protestantism in America. And so uh, usually when you've thought of America, you thought of Methodists and Episcopalians, and it's just not that way anymore. How do we see millennials, young adults, responding to this presidency? Mm-hmm. Uh, Donald Trump's approval ratings among millennials generally are uh, pitiful. Um, And so uh, I believe the last numbers I've seen are 65%, 70% of millennials uh, disapprove of uh, President Trump. And so really, really profound disconnect uh, there, to say the least. Uh, That has to do with an array of issues, uh, I think just cultural approach, uh, social approach, uh, Donald Trump's willingness to um, uh, uh, to go against sort of millennials' cultural values and beliefs in inclusion and diversity uh, and and welcome have uh, really brushed up, and it, it's going to be a um, it's going to be a major problem for the Republican Party as a whole. They kind of can't separate themselves out from Donald Trump. Donald Trump is the head of the Republican Party. Uh, and so uh, there are, there's a lot of concern right now in the Republican Party that Donald Trump's uh, lack of uh, approval with millennials is going to carry over even more deeply with the, with the Republican Party as a whole. It's been a year since his inauguration. Has President Trump delivered for the people who put him there? You know, in some key ways, he has uh, delivered on some of the expectations of white evangelicals. So as we've discussed, the uh, the Supreme Court uh, uh, pick of Neil Gorsuch uh, certainly checked that box. box. The, the, um, Donald Trump did a lot of uh, unorthodox, uh, had, uh, took on a lot of unorthodox tactics uh, in his presidential campaign. The one orthodox thing he did that was a brilliant move is when he uh, took out that list of potential Supreme Court nominees. That was the one tangible thing that white evangelicals had that even after the Access Hollywood comments and all of this, they could always point back to that one substantive traditional thing. Here are the Supreme potential Supreme Court nominees he would give us if he gets into office. And so that he, he delivered on that. Uh, the, the other important thing he did was a major controversy from the previous administration was uh, the HHS contraception mandate. This was a provision uh, in the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, that mandated that employers cover birth control. This, of course, was a major issue for Catholic and other employers that object to birth control from a religious perspective. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, uh, President Trump recently uh, made it so that these employers are free from that obligation. And that was a significant, uh, that was a clarion call uh, during the campaign, and that's something Trump delivered on. And so uh, some of these top-line sort of social conservative uh, issues, he's delivered policy wins on. I think what many evangelicals are concerned, many evangelical leaders are concerned about uh, is what happens when your agenda 
is uh, advanced by someone who is not only so politically unpopular, and this president has the lowest approval rating in his first year of any president since we've been tracking things like approval ratings, but also someone who clearly doesn't share the same types of convictions that you do from the same source uh, uh, about life or religious freedom. Uh, There is the perception that these are more political political gifts to a loyal constituency than anything coming out of a deep well of conviction about about life uh, or marriage, for instance. So you know, Donald Trump will go to the Faith and Freedom Coalition and talk about family being the cornerstone of America, American life. And I have many evangelical friends who would say, how many cornerstones do you need? This is a man who's been married three times and doesn't seem to, to treat marriage too seriously in his personal life. And so there's a long-term concern in evangelicalism that if things like the pro-life movement become too closely attached with this president, when the presidentship goes down, and some would say that it's already going down, will these movements go down uh, with with them? And and that's a major concern. Speaking of those shifts, Charlottesville seems to be, have been a tense moment for his relationship with the church. How have we seen, even within the first year, support among Christians shift? You know, it's difficult to say. Uh, African-American opposition to the president has, I think, clearly hardened over the last year as uh, some of the uh, concerns about him have been realized. Uh, I think, uh, among other key populations, I think uh, women have uh, had their opposition hardened. Among white evangelicals, uh, it's it's fluctuated, actually. So uh, some uh, polls suggest that his approval rating among white evangelicals is dipped to mid to low 60s, which is still a majority, but it's not at the 81% that it has been, uh, that he received in the election, that it's uh, it's been in the mid 80s, uh, you know, during, the, uh, during his presidency, the early stages. Um, and so uh, it's difficult when Democrats aren't offering an affirmative alternative for evangelicals to go elsewhere. So they're sticking they're sticking by him, and we'll just have to see if in the midterms and if 2020, if, uh, if evangelicals are given another place to go. Do you think Trump could win a second term? I do. Um, it is unclear to me whether the Democratic Party has, has learned uh, the lessons uh, of 2016. Uh, I, I do think it's it's unlikely. I think it's very hard to win re-election with a 41% approval rating. Uh, but we're a long we're a long ways off. The pr- President Trump recently showed at his State of the Union that he has a different gear that he can go into if if he so desires. Um, uh, and so uh, it's, it's definitely possible that he can win, uh, win re-election, especially, again, if the Democrats pursue uh, an electoral strategy that is very unlike what Barack Obama pursued, what Bill Clinton pursued, um, which is to try and win, uh, pursue what they call a 50 plus one strategy, win 50% of the votes plus one and, and you've won, um, 
that, that limits your margins. <laughs> uh, we need a Democratic Party. And frankly, we need a Republican Party, too, that is going out for the whole country, where there's actually a contest of ideas, not just an appeal to uh, a certain uh, a number of constituencies and voters that you think will, will add up to victory. What will Trump's legacy be, do you think? How will the U.S. be different because of his presidency? It's difficult to tell. Um, my, my former boss, uh, President Obama, would, would talk during his uh, time in office often about the, uh, the fever breaking, uh, whether the, uh, the fever would break in terms of polarization and obstruction. Um, I, I think a major uh, question is whether the fever will break in America when it comes to basic questions of political proceduralism, political civility, um, uh, the, the, the political norms, uh, or whether we are seeing a, uh, a spiral downwards. Um, and it will be up to the American people to make that decision about whether they want, uh, a, whether they want the next president um, to employ Trumpian methods just in the way that they would like for their preferred policy goals, or whether they say, "Wait, policy is important, uh, but but this element of political culture, what, the way that we practice politics." has to be included in the sort of matrix of how we consider our vote. And so I, I, I think President Trump's legacy will largely be determined by what follows President Trump. And how do you think the church will be affected in the long term by Trump's presidency? Um, this, uh, this ordeal has... Uh, really risen to the surface conversations that we should have been having for years. And so uh, President Trump's appeals on the basis of fear, uh, on the uh, basis of um, demagoguery, those aren't new to evangelical politics. He employed them in very crass ways, but those aren't new. Um, the split among white evangelicals, for instance, and the historical, uh, the historically black church in terms of the way they voted, that's not new. That's existed. It's just we had uh, uh, a Republican nominee in Trump who won't even pay lip service to sort of uh, making legitimate, sincere appeals to African-American communities. And so uh, I, I'm actually hopeful. I actually think that um, that this political moment, this cultural moment, this religious moment is bringing to the surface uh, things that the church will work through and that will be better uh, on the other end of it. I've been encouraged by the new voices I've seen. We're seeing an increase of, of female leadership. We're seeing, uh, we're seeing evangelical pastors who thought that they could be quiet about politics. Uh, now not becoming political activists, but understanding uh, that their congregants need help connecting and drawing the line between what they teach on Sundays and issues of public importance and the way you live out your public life. And so I view this time as a tilling of the ground uh, for which new things can, be, um, uh, can rise to the surface.